So our money, your money, is going to help pay for them to go to a preaching conference. So they have a little video saying thanks. Hey, friends at Exodus. I'm Dave Shunk from over here at the Vineyard. And I just want to say a big thank you to you and your... What are you doing? I'm making a selfie video. Why are you making a selfie video? Well, our friends at Exodus have asked us to. Why are they asking us to make a selfie video of us? Because they're going to help you become a better preacher. My reputation's that good, huh? I guess it is what it is. But no, seriously, they are uh, going to pay our way to a uh, preaching conference in November. Oh, well, that's, that's pretty nice of them. Okay, well, let's do this then. Well, hey, like I said, I'm Dave Shunk. This is my son, David, and we are preaching pastors over at the Vineyard. And uh, we just want to say a big thank you for helping us to uh, go to this conference, for providing the way for us to be able to go and hone our skills at sharing the word, preaching. And I tell you what, there's nothing that we value more than communicating God's love and God's story to his people and to people that don't yet know him. And so we really value this gift that you are sending us so that we can learn how to be better communicators of that love and of his word. Well, hey, while we're making a selfie video, let's make a duck face. Have you no dignity? <laughs> so you may know the Shunks, and that probably fits their personality. So, um, so anyway, so uh, every next few weeks we'll have other videos. I've gotten other videos from other pastors just saying thanks because one of the things that is strongly valued here at Exodus is we will value you and we will support in practical ways other churches in town and other pastors. So um, what, we, what I've found is it's easy to say that, but I think it's important for us to put our money where our mouth is. That's why we're doing that. So it's been, in, it's been encouraging for, uh, for me, and I know it's been encouraging for a lot of these pastors. I met a couple of them this week, and they were just saying thanks again for what we've done. So, Hey, let me pray, and then we're going to look into God's Word this morning. So, uh, God, we acknowledge that the invisible world is real. And though we don't always sense it, smell it, feel it, touch it, um, it doesn't take away from the reality of a supernatural world around us, even in this very time and place. That even though we're physical beings who breathe in oxygen and sit on chairs and stand on a wooden floor, that we also know there's activity going on in a world that we can't see, even inside of us, because your word says that for those of us who have Christ inside of us, that you're always at work. So even as we look into your word this morning, uh, would you help us through the power of your Holy Spirit see and hear whatever you want us to see and hear so that we can continue to grow to be, to grow to be the kind of people you said we can be and will be, and that is people that are full of the life and the love that come from you alone, people that are absolutely full of your spirit inside of us. That's who we want to be because we want to be a part of how you want to change the world. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, I was looking for an image, uh, <laughs> an image to kind of describe what I'm wanting to communicate today and what I think the passage is communicating. And uh, you can tell that's an egg in a vice, which I, I, that wasn't, I didn't, I found this picture. I wasn't doing this. Egg in a vice with a crack in it. And uh, when, you when I sat there and were staring at the picture this week, you have this feeling of, one more turn and the crack becomes a broken egg, right? And I'm guessing, because I know I've felt this way at times, I'm guessing there are people here who, if not now, you have known what it feels like or you will know 
to feel under under pressure to the point where you wonder if you are about to crack. And I don't mean crack like um, have some major, uh, you know, going postal, whatever those terms are. But I mean crack like you know inside of you something changes and you either give up, you give in, you give in to despair, you give in to something. Because usually when we crack spiritually, some people don't even know it, but we know something in us is kind of caved, have given in, under pressure. So I don't know what kind of pressure you're under, but my guess is everybody, you know, if you're under it now, you know what I'm talking about and you've all been under, whether it's under financial pressure, relationship pressure, pressure about a decision you're trying to decide, pressure about something inside of you that you can't quite seem to get to be the kind of person you want to be, whether it's a habit you can't shake, whether it's a mentality you can't seem to shake some thoughts. But every one of us to some degree are under some kind of pressure where we're kind of wondering, am I going to be able to make this or am I just going to give in? One of the things we've been talking about the last few weeks, the last month or so is the uh, book of Philippians. That's what we're talking about today, where Paul talks quite a bit about joy, and that's why I've called the series Living a Life of Abnormal Joy. Um, Paul, the, the book, go to the next slide, the book was written um, about 62 AD. I had to wait for my slide to come up, I forgot exactly. And so the question is, how do we take what was written then? So on the left, like I said before, it's a Greek manuscript. It's the oldest one we know of Philippians from 200 AD. How do we take what Paul wrote to those people then, way back when, and apply it to our lives now? Because that was a whole different world, a whole different reality, but yet we believe the Holy Spirit was leading Paul to write these things to them, and we believe what the Bible says that the Word is living and active. So these things are true to us now. So, now, the next slide. So, what we so Philippi was a city in ancient Greece. Uh, there was a group of Christians that lived there. Paul um, was thought to be, at the time of the writing of this letter, in Rome, and he was thought to be in prison. We know he was in prison. There's some debate among some people where he, whether he was in prison in Rome or Ephesus, we don't know. But we know he was in prison when he wrote this letter. Which makes it all the more amazing that he writes so much about joy. Um, there's a song that I've taught my kids, and we've sung before. Like, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, rejoice in the Lord. And I always tell them, when we sing that song, I always ask them, where was Paul when he wrote this? And they know now he was in prison, Dad. Because I want them to realize, okay, here, Paul's in prison. He was not in prison like USA-style prison. In those days, the Roman prisons were usually dug underground into rocks, dark, damp, and they had to rely on food from family and friends to the outside to feed them. And probably, you know, no running water anyway that time of history. Can you imagine it was the worst kind of facilities to use? And Paul didn't know if or when he was getting out of prison. But he's writing about joy. So talk about under pressure. And how do, you, how do we be the kind of people we want to be under pressure as opposed to the kind of people we see ourselves being? So here's what I want to do. I'm going to talk about, I'm gonna actually start first. Go back to the Old Testament because I want to talk about somebody else who was under pressure. And then we're going to go to what Paul wrote in the book of Philippians. But you may know the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph was this, uh, one of many sons. Um, he was actually, his father's name was Jacob. His brothers were envious of him because there was a dysfunctional going on in the family where the dad obviously favored Joseph more than the other brothers. 
primarily because he loved his mother more than others because there was multiple wives then. So read the story if you want to fit in all the details. So make it, I think it's going to make a great movie, by the way. And I haven't figured out who I would want to play Joseph, but it's going to make a great movie someday. So, so Joseph is sold. His brothers, some of them want to kill Joseph. But instead of, uh, so they throw him into this well, and one of the brothers talks him out of killing him. What a nice brother, right? Don't, let's not kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery. So again, really nice brother. Um, so instead of killing him, they throw him in this well. And some of the brothers then get him out when a, tr- when a caravan in the desert goes by. And they sell him into slavery and to somebody who's going to go to Egypt. Now, geography-wise, from where they were in the promised land in Israel to Egypt, it was a long distance. But again, those were days before airplanes, cars, and all kinds of email, text, or whatever. So Joseph was being sold into a life completely cut off from the life he knew. So now freeze frame for a second. Joseph is in this caravan going to Egypt. Can you imagine the pressure he was feeling, especially toward his brothers? So the pressure of giving in to either hate, unforgiveness. Can you imagine what was going on inside of him emotionally? It was probably anything but super spiritual. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us, but he was human. Joseph was human, all right? So Joseph goes to Egypt. He's sold as a slave to a guy named Potiphar. Um, He's falsely accused, basically, of sexual assault, a false accusation. Uh, A woman brought it against him. It was Potiphar's wife. So again, not only is he now sold into slavery and he's probably has some issues toward his brothers, now he's falsely accused and he's thrown into prison. So he's in prison for a number of years. So again, if you were Joseph right now in prison and you're replaying the scenes of your life and that your brothers, some wanted to kill you, but instead they were nice to you and sold you as a slave, then you are serving with integrity as the slave in the master's household. You're falsely accused by the master's wife of sexual assault, and now you're in prison. So you can imagine not only in his head what's stirring, but in his heart what could be stirring toward God. Like, God, why me? And the pressure he would feel to give in to, forget you, God, you're not doing anything for me. Or the pressure he would feel to give in to anger, vengeance, all those thoughts that we get when we're falsely accused or we're treated, mistreated. And again, who was... In a sense, who was mistreated more severely than Joseph or falsely accused more than Joseph? Um, there are others who have more, more mistreatment, but it's a pretty severe thing. So then the story unfolds, boom, 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 boom. Joseph all of a sudden is now the assistant to the Pharaoh. He interpreted some dreams with God's help. Again, read the story if you want to fill in the blanks. He interpreted some dreams with the help of God, predicted this famine that was going to be coming to the land of Egypt, told the Pharaoh this is how... You can keep Egypt alive and told them how to save crops and store them and use it. So fast forward, his brothers now are being sent by their father from Israel to Egypt to get food because his father heard there was food in Egypt. They had, for all they knew, Joseph was long dead. They show up, Joseph, um, Joseph recognizes them. They don't recognize Joseph. And... uh, 
Joseph kind of plays some games with him, a little, not games, not like Monopoly games, I don't mean that, but just emotional games, because they, they don't know it's him, but he's, he's playing on trying to figure out if his dad's still alive. Then he decides he's going to reveal himself to his brothers. So this is many years later, maybe a dozen years plus later. He's had all this time to probably think about and to ponder and to cultivate anger and revenge. Because who under that kind of pressure would have given in otherwise to something else? But, he, so here's, but, but then he finally reveals himself to his brothers, and this is what he says. I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing in front of them. And he says, I'm Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery to Egypt. But don't be upset. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. And then a couple more times he said, it was God who sent me here. It was God who sent me here. I read that and I think, God, I want to be like Joseph. I want to be like Joseph to see you at work in a way that didn't make any sense to me, but also have the confidence under pressure to know that you're at work. Because most of us at those points would have been like, now I have the power and authority to exact vengeance on my brothers. And then later on, his father dies. So now the brother's thinking, well, now that our dad's dead, Joseph's really going to get us. Joseph gathers and says, you know what? I'm not going to do what you meant for evil. God works for good. And so under pressure, somehow this soul in this 17-year-old young man that eventually became a 30-something-year-old young man, somehow he kept his soul anchored in the goodness of God and in confidence to God, and he didn't give in to the pressure, which would yield him to anger or vengeance, bitterness. So that's Joseph. And everybody who would have read this letter for the Philippians would have understood that story. But that's how one person reacted under pressure, under suffering. His soul stayed intact and confident in God. Now let's go to Paul under pressure. All right, I already said Paul's in prison. We also know from reading the book of Acts, Paul's in prison, but he's also been whipped before, beaten before with rods, all kinds of things, stranded on a desert island, all kinds of things, all in the service of God. So it would be understandable if he was like, come on, God, I, look what I've done for you, and I'm getting this, I'm getting bruises, I'm bleeding. But now he's in prison. And again, we don't know exactly where he was. We don't know, but the, the sense I would say is Paul really didn't know whether he was getting out of prison. We don't know if he, this was one of, we don't know if this was the imprisonment that led to his beheading because Paul eventually was uh, killed. Um, but this is what he writes in the book of Philippians. And he's writing, so he's writing in prison to the Philippians. The Philippians, Paul understood, were going undergoing some kind of pressure and persecution. So things weren't going well for them. There was most likely some kind of external pressure from their culture, persecution, because they were followers of Christ. All right? And this is what Paul writes. And I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. Now just stop right there for a second. It's incredible when you think about it that Paul could write that. He's in the middle of prison. He's not out of prison. He's not post-suffering. He's in the midst of a dark, damp, dingy prison setting, and he's writing, hey, I want you to know everything that has happened here helped to spread the good news. And he's not saying that with a cheesy smile. He's not saying all things work together for good. He's saying it in a sense that he un- totally believes that, that what has happened to me that was painful and unfortunate and not fair 
God's working to spread the news about Jesus. So stop for a second and think about things that have happened to you that have been painful, unfair, unfortunate, not your fault. Maybe even in the name of Jesus. And is it possible that, of course it's possible, but is it possible from your understanding that God can use those things to actually expand the influence of Jesus through you to other people? Because Paul's saying that's what's happening. I'm in this awful place, but God's using this for me through, through me that God can deliver other people, just like Joseph understood that. So then Paul goes on to say this, For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I am in chains because of, because of Christ. So the guards know this. You know, other prisoners know this. And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. It's true that some are preaching out of jealousy and rivalry, but others preach about Christ with pure motives. They preach because they love me, for they know I've been appointed to defend the good news. These others don't have pure motives as they preach about Christ. They preach with selfish ambition, not sincerely, intending to make my chains more painful to me. We don't know exactly what that meant, what Paul meant by that, but we, because some, some people think it was other people who were just kind of false teachers, where they were using the name of Christ because that was the hot topic of the day, and they were you know, getting on, get, making their money by using, talking about this hot topic of Jesus. Others think it was actually people who didn't like Paul and they were preaching in such a way to make Paul even look worse. They were saying Paul's in jail because he's not even preaching Jesus correctly. And it's all. So Paul's saying he's knowing that what's going on outside of prison is intended to hurt him because he says they're trying to make my chains even more painful. But then he says, but that doesn't matter. If you know somebody's intentionally trying to hurt you or discredit you or cause you pain, how do you get to the point in your soul with God that you can say, but that doesn't matter? Most of us, that's quite difficult, right? That isn't because it, it does matter because we're hurting. But Paul, not in a fake way, but in a whole, full, full of life soul way, says, but that doesn't matter. Whether the motives are false or genuine, the message about Christ is being preached either way. He's just glad that people are talking about Jesus. So I rejoice and I will continue to rejoice. For I, knew that as, I know that as you pray for me and the spirit of Christ Jesus helps me, this will lead to my deliverance. For I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed. But I will continue to be bold. All right, notice the theme of shamed and being bold for Christ as I've been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ whether I live or die. For to me, living means living for Christ and dying is even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between the two. I long to go and be with Christ. This wasn't a death wish. It was just Paul saying, I, I really understand now. I want to be with Jesus. Which would be far better for me as, of course, better than prison. But as for your sakes, it's better that I continue to live. And Paul knew that may mean in prison the rest of my life. For the sake of other people, I will endure what, God's put, what, what I'm being put through. Knowing this, I'm convinced that I will remain alive so I can continue to help all of you grow and experience the joy of your faith. There's one of the instances where he talks about joy. And when I come to you again, you will have even more reason to take pride in Christ Jesus because of what he's doing through me. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then whether I come and see you again or I only hear about you, because again, he didn't know if or when he was getting out. I will know that you are standing side by side, fighting together for the faith, 
which is the good news. Do not be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them they are going to be destroyed, that you are going to be saved, even by God himself. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. Interesting phrase for most of us that Paul is saying it's a privilege to suffer for Christ. And he's acting as if that's something they should look forward to. Again, we don't have a death wish as Christians or a, you know, I want somebody to, be, I want to suffer for Jesus kind of wish. But Paul's saying those who do, it's a privilege. We're in this struggle together. You have seen my struggle in the past and you know that I'm still in the midst of it. So here's Paul under pressure and go to this next slide because here's the things that he, some of the things he says under pressure. He talks about being bold. I mean, when I'm under pressure, you know what I do? I kind of shrink and my timidity kind of shows up because I don't want to be bold. Because when I'm under pressure, I start doubting God. I start doubting the goodness of God and I'm at best just trying to survive. But Paul's saying, no, no, you can boldly speak. He talks about speaking without fear. He talks about never being ashamed, but being bold again and talks about joy. We, one of the things we say of Exodus is we want to be a catalyst for turning ordinary people into abnormally loving, joyful, and courageous followers of Jesus. I mean, just in this passage alone, Paul's talking about what I would call abnormal courage. He says, no, I'm even being more bold now. I'm not, I'm not ashamed of Jesus. I'm going to be more bold. Even though that's why I'm in prison, I'm going to be more bold. He's talking about uh, this abnormal kind of joy. Like, who talks about joy when they're in a prison cell? Who talks about joy when they're in chains? Who talks about joy when they don't know whether they're going to get out of jail or not before they are killed? That's abnormal. It's unusual. We might even use the word weird, not in a goofy way, but just like, who does that? Then he also says, live worthy of the good news. Talks about the privilege of suffering for him. And then we are in this struggle together. And again, here's my overarching question this morning. How do you become that kind of person? That when life's pressures are on you, again, whether it's financial pressure, relational pressure, uh, internal pressure, or it could actually be in some cases opposition because you follow Jesus. It's under that kind of pressure to be able to say and to believe and to act more boldly, more joyfully, more clear about what you believe you're all about, more loving. He has these warm, tender feelings towards these people, and it's like, who is this guy? And again, what I want to ask is, how do I become like that? Because when I'm under pressure, if I were to just go over the last month of my life of pressure I'm under, whether it's not prison, of course, even like time pressure, traffic pressure, money pressure, relationship pressure. I mean, those are small, small things. But how many, when you think of those times in the last month of your life, have you responded in a way that shows the fullness of your soul in a way where there's a greater boldness, a greater joy, a greater clarity about who you are? Probably not. My guess is, some of us end up responding in ways that we kind of come out of maybe the dark side of our hearts or at least the less than redeemed part of our hearts. We get angry, we get frustrated, we start questioning God. We don't say it out loud, but we start 
kind of toning down our spirits and shrinking a bit because we get into survival mode. Usually under pressure, most of us, at least I know my own story, under pressure, I fall into survival mode. And when I'm in survival mode, I'm not bold, not much joy. Fear usually shows up because I'm trying to figure out if God's even for me anymore. Then I'm afraid, you know, I got to watch out for myself. And suffering and struggle being privileges and good things seem so distant from me. So again, the question that I, that I ask when I look at this passage, maybe you're asking is, okay, so how do I become like Paul? How do I have a heart like Joseph under pressure? How do I respond under pressure in such a way where love and joy and courage and boldness come out of my heart as opposed to when we're squeezed like an orange, you know, dripping out. What drips out often is bitterness, anger, frustration, and kind of a shaking your fist at God and others because life's not working out for you. How do you become the former? And the answer is, I'm not exactly sure. <laughs> but I do know, I am sure, but I'm not sure. It's not a step one, two, three. It's not like, here's three easy steps to become like Paul. But what I do know is, even one of the songs we sang earlier made me think about this. Oh, how I need you. Oh, how I need you. Oh, how I need you. Oh, how I need you, God. Oh, how I need you. I'm convinced that if when you're under pressure and you see things coming out of you, you don't like, you don't come under pressure and you don't come out with joy and boldness like Paul does, the best and the most proper response at that time is simply even a verbalized prayer to say, God, I, I need you. Because even in that statement, you're opening up something in your spirit. You're saying, something in me now is broken. I know that. And you're giving the Holy Spirit an invitation for access inside of you. It's not overly complicated at that point, but it's quite a challenge because at that moment you have to be able to realize I am broken. I don't like right now how I'm responding under, under pressure, under suffering, under stress. And to simply say, Jesus, right now I need you. And it's not simply saying that as a mantra, but it's a saying that was an invitation for Jesus to come in and invade and to rearrange and to over the next few days, who knows what might happen. God may lead you a passage of the scripture. He may lead you to a greater degree of brokenness because you realize that every time you're under pressure, you see something coming out of you that's anything but bold, joyful, loving, and courageous. This next passage, then go, to, uh, go to the next slide. Here, here's, here's the, here's the one-liner from the day. You can be abnormally... You can be abnormal under pressure. That's the goal. That's what Jesus said we can be. We can be abnormal under pressure. Just like Paul, we can be bold, joyful. Um, we can look at suffering and struggle as a part of the, as the part of the growth, but also Paul even saw it as a partnership with Jesus. He found joy in suffering and struggle, not in a goofy mental illness kind of way, but in a way where he understood that suffering and struggle because of Jesus brings something into our souls, brings a life into our souls, brings a joy into our souls that can't get there any other way. 
even as I just said that, I was going to say, do you understand what I just said? But I'll say to myself, do I even understand what I just said? There's a certain kind of joy that will never get into your soul except through struggle and suffering. It can't get there except through struggle and suffering. So if the objective of your Christian life is to avoid struggle and suffering, you are also avoiding a certain degree and a depth and a fullness of joy that God can only pour in through suffering and struggle. Again, you don't, we don't go out and look for suffering and struggle, but I do know many of us, self-included, live our lives in such a way that we want to avoid that, and we can work over, we're smart enough, most of us are smart enough, we can organize our lives and control details enough so struggle and suffering are kind of blocked out of the picture. And again, I'm not saying you go look for it, but I am saying we need to stop playing the game of control where we control our life around those things. Because God may be telling you to do something, and you might say, well, I'll do, I, I'll do part of that, God, but I'm not going to do all of that, because if I do all of that, I'm going to feel a little out of control. And if I do all of what you're asking me to do, it may lead to some kind of a struggle or difficulty that I don't want to have. So I'll do half of what you're asking me to do, God, because I can control that half. I won't do all of it. But it's interesting that Paul seems to see, as well as affirmed through other passages of Scripture, that suffering and struggle seem to be the very clear gateway and the only gateway joy even the scripture says jesus for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame so let's go to this last slide here and we'll finish with this one this is what paul said in another letter to the church in galatia paul wrote a number of letters most of the latter new testament books are actually letters he wrote and paul says this I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Now, even that first phrase, I've known that verse for most of my 52 years. And I still, I know what it means. I don't always know what it means. I get it. But what Paul's saying is something in me has to continue to keep dying. God doesn't want me to not be me anymore. He wants it to be more me. But that means this desire of me to control my life and to make it work out in my favor has to die. Because that comes from, that comes from the, the deepest part of a self-centered ego. So Paul's saying, I've been crucified with Christ and I don't live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul seems to have this secret, which is not really a secret, it's just the truth of Scripture. That if you want to find life, which is what Jesus said, you have to lose life. And by that losing life, not like give up your identity, but give up your games of control. Give up trying to make your life work out for your comfort. And start trusting whatever Jesus asks you to do, that he will lead you to the life of joy. And that will most likely lead you through struggle and suffering. It will can't be avoided you can play the game of trying to avoid it you can try to you know work around that it's kind of like what i said before I, uh, sometimes we love the we love the power of the resurrection but we we kind of want to arrange it so we can kind of avoid the difficulty of the cross so we go straight to the resurrection i remember i had somebody tell me years ago another person in the ministry actually 
I don't like it when people talk about the Jesus being bloody and dying on the cross. And I was like, what, what, what do you mean? He goes, I just don't like the whole notion of suffering. I like resurrection. I don't like suffering. And the message of the scripture is you can't have one without the other. So let, you can have abnormal, you can be an abnormal person. You can live an abnormal kind of life in terms of love, joy, and courage. But the key phrase is you have to follow Jesus. And Jesus will lead you down pathways that will be leading you to love, joy, and courage. But it will lead you through struggle, suffering, and difficulty. But he will lead you to love, joy, and courage fullness of the life of God inside of you so to those of us again self-included if there's any way in which you're resisting the leadership of Jesus in your life because you're afraid of where it might lead you be confident that he's always going to lead you to love greater love greater joy greater courage just like Paul talked about in this passage so let's pray together God, my sense is the greatest emotion most of us struggle with, and even what I just said in this message this morning, the greatest struggle we have is fear. Because we're afraid of what might happen if we truly do give ourselves over to you and your way. It's really easy to follow you 80%, 85%, 90%, 95%. And we can hold on to 5 10 or 15% and keep kind of some degree of comfortable distance between us and what you're asking us to do, while at the same time still believing we're following you. But God, I pray that you would, um, whatever fear we have, whether we don't think you're going to pull through for us, whether we're not sure if you're for us, your word says that perfect love casts out fear. So we know that the only way that that fear is going to be dissolved is our understanding and experience of your love for us. So even as we go through our week, even as we go through communion here in a moment, would that even be another marker for the perfect love you have for us? And will your unconditional, all for us kind of love, can we experience that and not just know it in our heads, God, we know We know in our heads we want to know it in our bodies. So that fear will be dissolved. And so we can truly say, I will follow you wherever you lead me. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. So we do every Sunday we finish with communion. Because uh, even when Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. This life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So uh, communion is an expression, very visible, symbolic, but also powerful expression of the love of Jesus for us. So here's how we do it at Exodus. We're going to sing another song or two. And uh, as soon as we start singing, you're welcome to come up for communion. We don't, we don't dismiss my rose. You don't have to have a membership card. We don't have them anyway to take communion. Anybody's welcome um, at the table of Jesus. Anybody's welcome who wants more of Jesus, and as far as you know, there's nothing in your life where you're giving Jesus what I call the straight arm. If there's something in, something you know that you are intentionally saying no to God about, whether it's a clear area of obedience, that you know you're disobeying something from Scripture, or there's some clear thing that you believe God's told you to do that you're 
you are, let's be honest, you're being stubborn about, it's to your own well-being not to take. And again, we're not going to check and see who's up or down, but it's the choice between you and God on that. So uh, you'll come on up, and they'll be filled each of the aisles. People will offer you the bread. Uh, you'll tear off a piece. Jesus said, this is my body. This is given for you. And then we'll offer you the cup. And how we do it, we just dip the bread in the cup. We don't try to drink out of the cup. Just dip it in there. Jesus said, this is my blood shed for you for forgiveness of sins. So as you take in this bread and juice that was bought at Marsh or Kroger or whatever, it's like it, it's, it's a very kind of ordinary symbol. But we believe in doing that. What you're doing is you're inviting, you're inviting the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus into your body in a way and into your soul. Because you're then saying to Jesus, I will take, I will follow you, your life. I'm going to follow you through your death and suffering because I believe there's resurrection on the other end. And there's joy on the other end. So let me pray and then we'll sing. Jesus, thank you for... Um, what the Bible calls this new and living way, that you opened up this curtain for us to go through a whole way of relating to you and being a friend of God that the people of old didn't even know. And then you come, you die on the cross, you're resurrected, you, you break through a whole new spiritual order of things. And you've now made it possible for us to have that same kind of breakthrough so God, would you, um, Jesus, would, we just want to let you know we're grateful, we're thankful. And the deepest part of our being is that you have opened up a way to life into our souls. And we ask this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.